0: Welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at FemCoffeePod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today, as always, we have a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. First, thank you very much for having me today. Uh, my name is Antonia Kirkland. I'm the Global Lead for our Legal Equality and Access to Justice. At Equality Now, um, which is an international human rights organization.
0: We met one of your coworkers at a podcast for women in podcasting and called Work It, uh, called Work it yeah. Okay, my
1: MPR. Yes.
0: Can you tell us more about Equality Now?
1: So Equality Now is an international human rights organization. And our mission is really to achieve legal and systemic change that will help promote the rights of women and girls around the world. And We work in partnership with local grassroots groups, activists, parliamentarians who are progressive, to really protect the rights of women and girls. And we use international and regional law primarily to do that.
0: What are your current projects and what countries are you currently working in?
1: We're working in many countries. We focus on four thematic areas within women's and girls' rights. Those are end-sex trafficking, And harmful practices like child marriage and female genital mutilation or FGMC, and also legal equality issues and access to justice issues, particularly around sexual violence with a focus on adolescent girls. But we work really in partnership with groups that have often national campaigns that they would like us to highlight at the international or regional level to get that kind of legal reform that will better protect the rights of women and girls under the law. And sometimes it's to get the law implemented if there's already a good one in place.
0: This podcast will probably air in uh, April or May. So is there anything on the horizon for this spring you'd like to talk about?
1: Sure. We have several campaigns that are ongoing, long-term, that the general public can take action on our website. So they can send petitions, they can sign letters, and there's several campaigns that are going on right now. So for example, in the U.S., we're working with several groups like the ERA Coalition and BA Ratify ERA to try to get an equal rights amendment in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, what, would, what would that be? So the equal rights amendment would be to explicitly call for equality and non-discrimination on the basis of sex in our Constitution, uh, because right now there's sort of provisions that you can use to argue for equality, but nothing that's really clear And that would better protect our rights as women and girls here. So that's one example. Another example is we have a national end child marriage coalition in the US that is focusing on trying to get states to raise their minimum ages of marriage to 18 uh, with no exceptions. And also, most importantly, at the federal level, is since there's no law in place, to get a provision that allows a defense to statutory rape if. The parties are married. So basically, it's endorsing child marriage at the national level, um, as well as sort of condoning sexual violence against minors just because they're already married. So that's one big campaign. And people can write to their congresspeople through our website and petition them to change that. I have
0: questions about both of those campaigns. So the Equal Rights Amendment, the fight for that has been going on for a very long time. Can you just talk a little bit about that, maybe just a very small amount of the history for people who don't know, and then what the status of that is right now?
1: So the Equal Rights Amendment to the con- U.S. Constitution was proposed way back when, and then the deadline for ratifying it passed, and there weren't enough states that had ratified it. There were still three more that needed to do that. And so it kind of died out for a while. But the last couple of years, it's really been picked up again by activists, including the ERA Coalition, to elite organization and others. And in the last year, two more states have ratified, Nevada and Illinois. So now we're only one state away from having enough states to have ratified it. Then there will still be issues that Congress will need to address in terms of the ratification deadline having passed and some states having rescinded. But we're optimistic that if we do get that last state, that'll become part of the constitution, which means that women's and girls' rights on a range of issues will be better protected. And do you have any
2: predictions about what that one last holdout might be, the last state that you need to ratify, somewhere where uh, potentially listeners could target their efforts?
1: Yes, so Virginia has been actively looking at it this last month when they've been in session. North Carolina is also one of the states that may be looking at it closely this spring. I think Arizona, there's about 10 more that you can see on our website. Send messages to your local state legislatures. I remember the ERA
2: is where I first learned about bathroom arguments that I think are still highly relevant today. I'm not sure if that's where it started, but in my mind, historically, that's where I first learned of them or the context in which I first learned of them, which is if we ratify the ERA, then we would not be able to have men's and women's locker rooms and you would have to shower (laughs) all (laughs) together.
1: Yeah, I can't say I've heard that argument. We think it's really important because individual laws and pieces of legislation are much more easily rescinded or taken back, whereas constitutional protections are a lot harder to change. And also it means that when the Supreme Court looks at cases of women's and girls' rights, they'll do it with a much more critical eye. So right now, like any case that comes on sex discrimination, is at a lower level of review. So it's much easier for women and girls to be discriminated against. So it's really important that we do get that. And we're one of the few countries in the world that does not have a specific equality provision. So I think others are looking to us also to do the right thing.
0: I had another question about your other campaign against uh, child marriage in the United States. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that issue and why you chose to target that specific policy?
1: Well, child marriage is a human rights violation. But there's no question about that. Under international law, that's been recognized, including the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights that the US actually has ratified um, and has to report to the UN Human Rights Committee on. It's an issue here. People think it's just an issue abroad, but in fact, there was a study done a few years ago that between 2000 and 2010, almost a quarter million of children below the age of 18 have been married. So that's quite a large number. And there's still 48 states where the minimum age of marriage is less than 18, or there's some big exceptions like a judge or parents can consent to the girls being married off. So what this means is that, for example, in Florida, before they changed the law last year, there was an 11-year-old girl who... Gave birth at age 10. Her family married her off to the rapist because there was no minimum age in Florida at the time and a judge could approve it. You know, She had four more children with her rapist before she was able to divorce him. So it really has a negative impact on girls' lives. This case is
2: particularly extreme, but could you speak to some other negative impacts that, that might come to children in marriages?
1: So often a girl will get married or be married off and it interrupts her education. She's more likely to get pregnant, have children early, which kind of limits both her educational opportunities, but also her employment opportunities and just basically her opportunities in life and fulfilling her capabilities. So we see it as something that really needs to be eliminated as soon as possible. And almost every country sort of adopted these UN Sustainable Development Goals in 2015. And in that, they explicitly said that one of the targets should be eliminating both child marriage and female genital mutilation.
2: Could you speak more about female genital mutilation? I attended a training for asylum seekers where we covered that topic in in great detail. And uh, it stood in heavy contrast to my kind of first women's studies class that kind of pushed to call it female genital cutting and to kind of downplay the the impact of what actually occurs in uh, countries where
1: this happens. Uh, Could you speak to that a bit? So female genital mutilation is a harmful practice that is practiced in primarily 29 countries, but obviously with globalization and immigration, but also with religious beliefs. Even here in the U.S., it happens everywhere around the world. The World Health Organization estimates that it affects about 200 million women and girls or has affected that many. And in the United States itself, over 500,000 women and girls it's thought have undergone FGM. That's a conservative estimate.
2: I heard a a much higher estimate than that.
1: Yeah, that is on the conservative side. It's hard to know exactly, of course, because not everybody reports (laughs) um, or very few do actually report. But in terms of, you know, the harmfulness of it, it ranges because there's, well, the World Health Organization categorizes four different types of FGM. So most extreme would be the removal of all that external genitalia and stitching up And then the sort of lightest one would be piercing, type 4. But still, that can have health consequences in terms of not just like future childbirth, but also possibly even death. And we've worked on a case in Egypt where a girl died when a doctor performed it on her. So, yeah, there's many risks and long-term impacts, both psychologically as well as physically. Yeah. And also,
2: the stitching is more common than... I had realized uh, and the difficulty in daily life, in urination, in menstruation was really made so clear to me in this training that I think given that and the prevalence of how many women and girls in New York in particular are taken overseas to have this done and then brought back was really impactful to me. So I've, I've become quite passionate about it. So I'm, I'm very grateful to your organization for working towards limiting that. And what are some of the ways in which Equality Now does that?
1: So it's interesting that you mentioned that practice of, you know, taking girls home to their home country on vacation for that cutting, because we know that it might happen here, but it might also happen when they're visiting family in other places. So we did work on legislation to get that banned in the federal law, and In terms of state laws, we work with direct service providers that, you know, help girls and women in these situations and we sort of help them with the policy and the advocacy side of their work. Yeah. And then just to mention that right now, the federal law on FGM is being discussed in court. So we've put in an amicus brief in Michigan where this case against two doctors and really arguing that the U.S. should Keep that federal law against FGM in place because one, it's the right thing to do for women and girls, but also two, because it's their obligation under international law to have those protections in place.
0: Do you have any thoughts about how we could better enforce these laws within the United States? Because I've only recently learned that FGM is done in the United States sometimes. How do you think we can tackle it? I mean, it's already illegal, but how do we mm-hmm. how do we enforce that? How do we um how do we actually eradicate the practice?
1: So I think what is really important is to have it at both levels, is to have it at the federal level, which we've had for a while now, but also to have it at the state level because when law enforcement and health providers and so on know what the state law is, they can better protect girls in their home state. So we do have a petition on our website that people can go to, there's one bill in Massachusetts that should be considered soon, that people can send messages there. But there's also fact sheets on laws state by state and where there aren't laws where we still need them. I
0: think what a lot of Americans might not know is that they might Mm -hmm. associate uh, FGM with African immigrants Mm -hmm. or with Muslims. But in the United Mm -hmm. States and in Europe, this Mm -hmm. was advocated by people like John Harvey Kellogg. Little girls Mm -hmm. had their clitorises burned with, with carbolic acid as a way to Mm -hmm. prevent masturbation. Do we know how that practice stopped or died out? And is there anything we can learn from how we eradicated it in the United States maybe the first time to how to do it the next time? Is there any way to look at that? Or is there not data? Or are they too different culturally to draw any conclusions?
1: You're absolutely right that it did happen in the US as well for sort of controlling uh, girls' sexuality, particularly if there was some Sort of religious thinking behind it. I think where we're seeing prevalence go down, it's a combination of things. The law is never the only answer, but it's definitely the sort of foundation, we believe, and supports social change. So there is definitely awareness and cultural change that needs to happen to say it's not acceptable anymore, but the law plays a big part of it. I mean, we know it's still happening here. I don't really know the breakdown by community. So it's hard to say, you know, what was successful, particularly in one or the other. But I could try to think more about that and get back to you.
2: So is Equality Now a largely U.S.-based organization, or is there more international leadership there?
1: We are international, um, both in the sense of having offices in different parts of the world. We also have a membership network that spans 160 countries. So we do have people taking action on our campaigns all around the world. And we do work with groups everywhere. We have an office right now in Nairobi that works with groups all over Africa, we also have an office in London. We have somebody in Jordan, and we're opening an office in the Middle East. And then we also have two colleagues in uh, near Washington, D.C. So we're growing. We also have a couple of consultants in other places where we don't have you know, official offices in Eurasia, for example, India, China. We try to do everything um, in English, French, Spanish, and Arabic to reach as many people as possible and also to be able to support their campaigns in their local languages.
0: Your coworker told us about that uh, your organization did a tie-in with Hulu and The Handmaid's Tale. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? I actually was
1: not that involved in that part of the work. Um, But I mean, I can say generally that we do try to use arts and advocacy to convey our message about women's and girls' rights. I think it's like a really important medium for reaching people. Especially because our focus is very legal and law-related, and many of us are lawyers who work here. But sort of that cultural awareness and social awareness that I was talking about before is a really important piece of it. So yeah, that was a great partnership to highlight issues that we're working on in a very um, public and media-friendly way.
0: Are there any projects that are going on that are? in the future that haven't launched yet that we should look for in the media or on your website, either in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or around the world?
1: So one big sort of international anniversary next year is the 25th anniversary of the adoption of the Beijing platform for action. And some people might remember this conference was where Hillary Clinton said women's rights are human rights. And from out of that There was a really great agreement amongst countries to take action on a number of issues, and one of them was very clearly about eliminating discrimination in the law. And so as a legal advocacy organization, we've used that anniversary to keep campaigning for legal reform on laws that affect family life, economic life violence type of laws. So we'll be relaunching that campaign. People will be able to write to governments directly and petition them to change those laws. And we'll have examples of the text of the law where you can see this discrimination very clearly. The World Bank actually put out a report a couple of years ago that over 90% of countries still have some kind of sexist law in their books. So it's still an issue. And in fact, some countries are even still today trying to introduce discriminatory laws. It's an important issue and important campaign that we hope people will take action on. Do you provide resources for people as an organization? We do have um, a resource section on our website. So we do have things like fact sheets. If you want to see the numbers on FGM in the U.S. or the state laws related to FGM, you can find that there. We also have our publications. So, for example, last month we released a report called Roblox to Justice, and this looked at the 15 former Soviet Union countries and their legal frameworks and how they address sexual violence and sort of the gaps in those laws. We also have digests of jurisprudence or cases on women's rights um, in the African system, for example. So we have a range of international and regional resources that people can look to
0: people want to learn more about Equality Now, how can they mm-hmm. uh, get involved and learn more?
1: So our website is very easy. It's just equalitynow.org. And that's where you can find the petitions and letters that you can send directly to governments from various issues. Uh, we also, of course, have Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram. So there's many different sort of forms that people can find out about us. And what are some of the ways that
2: the people can get involved with the organization or ways that people can support it?
1: Primarily, it's great if people want to take action on our campaigns. They can do that easily on our website and just sign up to get those alerts when we do have a campaign launching. Um, and we're good about updating people when changes happened or there's another big step or event coming related to it. Of course, there's always ways to donate that you can see on our website. Could host events and spread the word. There's many ways that we'd love to work with people. What kinds of
2: events does Equality Now ask people to host or host
1: themselves? Right. It could be fundraising. It could be just talking about various issues. It could be discussing um, maybe a campaign on our website or an article or something related. And if we're there, we can, of course, share um, what we're doing in person. But there's some suggestions on our website about how to go about that under the Support Us tab at the top.
0: And if someone had a question for you about Equality Now or about one of your campaigns, what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you?
1: Info at org is probably the best way because our colleague at CheckStack can direct it to the right person. That sounds great. Is there anything you'd like to add? No, just thank you so much for having me on your show. And I hope that everybody will take action.
0: Well, thank you for talking to us. You can find me on Twitter at MissCherryPie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find
2: me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. And you can find her music on SoundCloud.